0: Bob Murphy Show, episode 245. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey
0: everybody, welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. Today I wanted to spend some time on Larry Summers' recent remarks where he was explaining that where we're going to need high unemployment in order to get inflation down. And I'm largely going to take it just as an opportunity to walk through some basics of, say, New Keynesian economics, macroeconomics, and the Austrian approach. But also, I do want to make a somewhat rhetorical point. All right, So before we get into all the meat of it, let me just make sure you guys know what's happening here. So let me... Read some of the news accounts first, and then I will play a clip. So unfortunately, what happened is Larry Summers gave a talk where he threw out some provocative claims saying things along the lines of, oh, in order to get the inflation back to normal, we're going to need to have a period of prolonged high unemployment. And then he gave some back of the envelope estimates. So let me just go ahead and read. Here we go. So this is, right now I'm reading from a Bloomberg article. This is from June 20th by Philip Eldrick. Former Treasury Secretary Lawrence Summers said the U.S. jobless rate would need to rise above 5% for a sustained period in order to curb inflation that's running at the hottest pace in four decades. Quote, we need five years of unemployment above 5% to contain inflation. In other words, we need two years of 7.5% unemployment or five years of 6% unemployment, or one year of 10% unemployment, says Summers in a speech in London Monday. There are numbers that are remarkably discouraging relative to the Federal Reserve view. All right, I think there's some typos in here. This was like a an article that got dashed out. Okay, so in case that wasn't clear, what he's getting at is like there's a sense in which we need an excess 5%. So it seems he's implicitly assuming that the baseline unemployment rate is 5%. That's consistent with long run what he would call price neutrality, but which really means CPI rising at 2% and perhaps even the personal consumption expenditure, that's the metric that the Fed uses rather than the raw CPI itself or the headline CPI, I should say. So what he's saying is if we think like the baseline sort of long run natural unemployment rate, and I'll talk more about what that means in a minute, is 5%, well, then he's saying we need like an excess five points in order to break the back of what he would call inflation or Austrians would tend to call price inflation, right? So that's why if you just had one year of it being 10%, so that's where you get the five excess points in there, right, because 10 is five higher than five for one year. Or he said you could have five years of 6% unemployment, right? So 6% is one point above, you know, the baseline five. And so you would need that for five years in order to accumulate, you know, the excess five, Point years, like if the dimension is the point of unemployment percentage, point of unemployment in you know with an extra with a year in the dimension, then there's that or two years of seven point five percent unemployment. So don't worry, this is the last one. I'll spell out just in case some of you are driving in heavy traffic and can't really focus. Right, so seven point five percent unemployment is two and a half points above five percent. So if you had that for two years in a row, then you would accumulate a total of five excess points. Okay. So that's what he was claiming. So now when he said that people just absolutely flipped. Well, actually let me go ahead and I'll play you a clip. So again, I could not nail down. I don't even know a video exists of him saying what I just quoted to you. That's what he said in the speech. And I guess it was in London, according to that Bloomberg story, but he's been saying similar things. So I do have the following clip. So Let's go ahead and listen to Larry Summers making a Similar point, but not in the exact same words and with those metrics. Is
1: a recession, a mild one, necessary in order to tame inflation? Can inflation at this point be tamed without triggering a recession? I don't think there are historical precedents for inflation at the rate we now have it coming down to the target the Fed has set of 2% without a recession. I think all the precedents point towards a recession, Chuck. There's always a first time for everything, and I don't want ever to make forecasts with certainty. But if you look at a whole range of indicators, if you look at what's happened in markets, if you look at the relative levels of interest rates of different durations, if you look at surveys of consumer expectations, and if you look at the simple fact that what drives inflation is supply and demand, supply doesn't change that fast. And so mostly what you need to do to reduce inflation is reduce demand. And that is a very hard process to control. And so it usually leads to a recession. All of that tells me that while I wouldn't presume to be able to judge the timing, the dominant probability would be that by the end of next year, we would be seeing a recession in the American economy. Okay,
0: so I've read to you what he said, explained it a little bit, and then I just played for you that clip and I heard it in his own words. So let's just spend some time unpacking all this. So as you can imagine, and maybe some of you saw this when it happened, when Summers came out and said that, a lot of people on the right absolutely flipped out. Calling him a Keynesian criminal and all this stuff. And oh my gosh, you know, you nut jobs, you create inflation by having the Fed print up a bunch of money, and then your solution to it is to have, you know, workers suffer unemployment, you know, that kind of stuff. Don't get me wrong, that's largely true. But I think it's possibly a bit unfair to Summers in this case, because what's interesting is, and maybe this was just partly because of the timing and why it struck me is right when Summers came out and said this, Jeff Deist and I had recently released a, or maybe we recorded it and wasn't yet out, but it was right around this time where we had done an episode on the Human Action Podcast talking about you know the prospects for the US economy. I also, right around this time, you know, had recorded something with Carlos Lara in the Lara Murphy Report, the podcast I do with him, where we were saying we thought a recession was likely. So you know, it's pretty standard for Austrian types to say after there's been an unsustainable boom that, hey, at this point, folks, a crash is inevitable. It's already baked into the cake. Don't believe these Keynesian soothsayers who think they're going to fine tune and give us a soft landing. No, they're not. The problem's already done. Like, in other words, the problem with a recession, according to the Austrians, isn't that, oh no, there's inadequate demand because of the fools in the private sector get squeamish and, I want to save money because there's a bad economy and I'm uncertain, not realizing that they're being selfish and they're just, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we could just get people to spend, I don't even care what they spend it on. If they just, you know, if the government paid people to dig holes and paid other people to fill them back up, that would be fine. And that's not a straw man. Keynes literally said that, by the way. Then that's all you need. You know, there's no need for a recession. You just need spending to be enough. And unfortunately- the way people are and animal spirits and blah, 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 that sometimes the private sector gets caught in a rut and there's not enough spending to support full employment. And that's when you need the government to come in. If the central bank has already slashed interest rates to zero, well, it can't slash anymore. Or at least that's what people used to think. And then that's why you need the government to come in and run a big budget deficit and spend more than it takes in to add to aggregate demand. All right. And so in that context, then the Austrians often are the ones who come along to be the party poopers, and say, oh, contraire, mon frere, because they also speak French. This is not good analysis. The problem with the recession is not merely a lack of spending, of aggregate demand. There's real factors at play. Real meaning is contrasted with just nominal. And there were genuine male investments that were made during the boom period. Right? The economy is on a physically unsustainable trajectory right now. Workers are getting up in the morning and going to job sites where they should not be going. And the only way in a voluntary society where people get to choose their occupations, if people are going to the wrong job site, or if some percentage of the labor force is going to the wrong job site, how do you fix that? If you don't have a command and control economy, well, they have to get laid off. That's how you fix it. Or you know, there's wage cuts or something such that enough of them decide to quit and you go look for work elsewhere. And since there's frictions, since you know the economy is complex... And it's hard for employers and employees to find each other, particularly if both parties realize they're not as wealthy as they thought, you know, and the workers' productivity is not as lucrative, is not going to generate goods and services that the employer can sell for as much as they thought previously during the boom phase, well, then it's going to take longer. There's going to be a period where a bunch of workers are either laid off or they quit because their conditions at their old job got intolerable. And they're looking for something better. And they realize, no, they're going to have to settle for something that paid them less than they received during the boom phase. And so that's going to cause unemployment. That's what unemployment is in the Austrian view. It's the necessary corrective period following an unsustainable boom when workers and other resources get reallocated to more sustainable niches. And so that's necessarily accompanied by a period of unpleasant unemployment high unemployment you know unemployment that's higher than the you know typical level okay so the austrians you know typical one also agrees right now that if they say hey or let me put it this way for the austrians saying no larry summers the way to fix this high price inflation isn't to have workers take it on the chin and get laid off what needs to happen is the fed needs to stop pumping in so much money larry summers wouldn't disagree with that. I mean, he's got a different framework. Don't get me wrong, but that is implied in his framework. He would say, Well, well, yeah, right. What I think should happen as a good Keynesian is the Fed needs to raise interest rates. It needs to tighten. And then if you pushed him and said, Well, how is the Fed gonna do that? Do they just say, I the grand wizard of Oz, command interest rates to rise? He would say, Well, no, they would, I guess, slow their asset purchases. And, and now in this regime, it's a little more complicated because they could increase the amount that they're paying on reserves. Okay. But old school textbook, how does the Fed raise interest rates? It stops pumping in so much money. Or even, you know, if it really needs to jack up rates, it sells off its, some of its assets to suck money out of the system. Okay. So again, even though the emphasis is different, so don't misunderstand me. I'm not claiming that Larry Summers is a crypto Austrian and his framework is wrong. And it's certainly not useful. So he, he is thinking... In terms of cause and effect, that oh, high unemployment goes hand in hand with like shrinking aggregate demand. And then that's what you need to cool off this overheating economy and things like that. So I agree that you know his framework is not very useful and the Austrian approach is better, but I'm saying in terms of the cause and effect, if the Austrians say what if you want to bring down price inflation, what needs to happen is the Fed needs to tighten. That will other things equal tend to make interest rates, at least short-term interest rates go up. That will cause businesses to lay off some workers or cause some businesses to lay off some workers. And it will cause everybody to, to revise downward their expectations of future wealth and income. And then that will lead to a period of higher than normal unemployment. I think Larry Summers and the typical Austrian economist would agree with all those steps in the argument of what's going to happen, okay? So not only do I think Larry Summers is right in saying his numbers and that stuff might not be right, but in terms of the general proposition, hey, folks, the only way we're going to bring down price inflation is if workers see a bad labor market for a couple of years here. I think that that's correct. It's unavoidable. And so not only do I think that what he's saying is true, I actually think he's being courageous for saying it. Okay. So now here, I don't know all the ins and outs. In other words, I don't know if necessarily he's being brave in saying that, or this is just him sort of throwing elbows against a clique that he wasn't a part of. All right. So that's the part I'm not sure of just because I don't know enough of the coalitions among these power elites. All right. So Larry Summers is definitely, you know, in with or at least rubbing shoulders with the lizard people, if you want to use that kind of terminology. All right. So Don't misunderstand me, but what I'm getting at is is he has been, Summers was warning about price inflation at least for a year. He was saying, hey, the central bank is, you know, maybe it was necessary because of the pandemic, blah, blah, blah. But just to warn everybody, price inflation is going to be worse than a lot of people are thinking, certainly what the people at the Fed are saying. And Summers even, I don't know if debate is the right word, but he was like on a panel or something with Krugman, I believe in the beginning of 2021. I'll see. I'll hang on. Let me jot a note to myself. If that is in fact correct, I'll link to it in the show notes page. Again, so go to bobmurphyshow.com slash two forty-five for all this stuff. Where Krugman was saying everything's fine. You know, there was a temporary spike in prices because of the supply chain issues and stuff. But hey, now that we're getting back to normal after the uh, you know, thank goodness Biden's in charge and we've got a sensible person at the White House and things will go back to normal. Don't worry about these right-wing nutjobs warning about price inflation, right? That was Krugman's take. And Summers was saying the opposite. He was saying, no, I think there's some structural issues here and we're in for rocky road ahead. So he was saying that early 2021. And so now the context of this is Summers is warning people, don't believe the Fed when they're telling you we're going to have a soft landing. He's saying, no, we won't. They're not going to be able to bring price inflation down smoothly what's going to have to happen is a bunch of people are going to get thrown out of work in order to get this inflation genie back in the bottle. All right. So he's telling the hard truth and warning the American people that the people in power right now are either lying to you or they're fooling themselves. But in any event, what they're telling you is not true. Okay. So again, whether Summers is to be congratulated for speaking truth to power, you know, because he's obviously getting a bunch of pushback for this, not just from Austrians, but a lot of people don't like hearing that. So he's being too pessimistic and whatever, or they're bringing up, you know, he's said some other politically incorrect things over the years. So a lot of people on the left were bringing up all that stuff about, oh, yeah, this is the same guy that said such and such. So he's not winning any popularity contest by taking this position. So it's a two-pronged thing. If he's number one, saying what I think is basically correct, and number two, possibly getting smacked by. Krugman and others for it. Maybe we shouldn't hate his guts over the whole episode. All right, so there's that. Let me now just spend a little bit of time explaining some of these concepts. So I'll just talk about the natural unemployment rate and then the Phillips curve. And then I think that's a good spot to wrap up. So the natural unemployment rate, the idea is, even though we talk about unemployment as being a bad thing, the idea is that, well... In a regular functioning economy, even if it's totally healthy because it's dynamic, because there's uncertainty, because there's new innovations always developing, people's preferences change, You know, workers need to move to new locations and so on. At any given time, the optimal level of unemployment is certainly above 0%. All right. So the idea is don't get into the habit of thinking unemployment is an unmitigated evil and that in a perfect world or at least a world free from policy error, that the unemployment rate would be basically 0%. That's not true. So yes, in a recession, the unemployment rate is high and that's bad. And you want to steer clear of that if possible as a policymaker. But so the logic goes, don't think that what you should try to target therefore is 0% unemployment. That's not correct. And so where is that coming from? Where's the notion coming from? Because what is unemployment? Well, in economics, unemployment is not the state of not having a job. That's a necessary but insufficient condition. You also have to be looking for work, all right? So when somebody retires and they're 80 years old and they just go to the golf course three times a week, even though they're not employed, they're also not unemployed, economically speaking. Okay, you have to be actively looking for work in order to be counted as unemployed. And so that's why unemployment is considered a bad thing. It's because, oh, people are being frustrated. The economy is not helping satisfy their desires. Another little quirk, let me just mention, some of the standard definitions for unemployment really don't quite work. So some people might say, oh, if someone's willing to work at given wages but can't find work, then you know the person's unemployed. Well, no, because I could say, hey, I'd like to be starting quarterback for the Buffalo Bills, And I see how much they pay for that position. Yeah, I'd totally be willing to do that. And they're not hiring me. And so therefore, I'm unemployed. And no, that's stupid. Okay, so another condition that I've never seen spelled out, but that actually has to be true is you have to be interchangeable from the employer's perspective with the workers who are currently employed at those wages or salaries in the positions under discussion. Okay, and so if... You would be happy to work at prevailing wage rates. You see people right now who have a job earning X dollars per hour, and the employer would agree that you are interchangeable with that worker, but they're saying, no, we can't hire both of you. Then, yes, that's what really has to be the case for you to be considered unemployed. And then something's wrong. And the question is, well, gee, how come wage rates don't fall? How come the employer just doesn't cut how much they pay in order to hire both of you? And then, you know, that kind of stuff. Or how come the wage rate doesn't fall enough so that? you no longer want to work at that job. Okay, so that's the issue. Okay, so if that's what unemployment means, if you just think it through, like I said, in the real world, you would expect at any moment in time some portion of the workforce to be people who are actively looking for work. Think of it this way. You in your normal life would expect to be unemployed at least some of the time, or it would not be inconceivable for you to be unemployed some of the time. And if you never were, and you thought, no, I never want to be unemployed, arguably you're not taking enough chances. Okay. And so, and certainly then if you just extrapolate that over the entire population, it really wouldn't be the case that everybody, when they start out, is, you know, an 18-year-old, let's say, or 16-year-old, or whatever, starting to enter the workforce. If they looked ahead for the next 70 years or whatever their span is for how much they think they might work, and to say there's never going to be a period where. I'm in between jobs and I'm looking around that I'm not sure what I want to do, and I'm drawing down on my savings. For example, you're saying that's never going to happen, and that like that would be optimal if that never happened. I, I would argue that well, no, then probably most people are being way too conservative. That they're probably locking themselves into a real safe career path that you know is not challenging enough for some people. Maybe fine, others not. Okay, and in any event. That may have been plausible in the 1950s, but certainly in today's economy, even if you wanted that, I don't think you're going to get it. All right. So that might be the way to help motivate this Is today. So therefore, at any given time, you really wouldn't want it to be the case that 0.1% of the population or the workforce is actively seeking work. That probably means there's not enough innovation going on. You know, if business failure rates are that low then that means there's not enough entrepreneurs taking risks, all right? So that's maybe a different way of looking at it. You wouldn't want an economy where no business ever fails because then that means nobody's taking chances, okay? So the, the way mainstream economists, I think Milton Friedman had a lot to do with this, is they argue that you can temporarily push the actual unemployment rate below the natural level, but if you do, you know, that, that's unsustainable and things have to adjust. That ultimately... You know, you can maybe fool people by printing up a bunch of money, and then workers seem to be getting paid a lot more. But eventually, they catch on. Or think of it this way: that you're at an initial equilibrium, and the estimate for the natural unemployment rate—it varies, but it used to be considered to be about five percent. All right, now I don't know if the estimates of that have come down. It's hard to say because you could say, "Oh, with with the internet now, it's a lot easier for qualified job applicants to find you know a, a suitable match for their employer." People can travel a lot more easily now. It's easier to relocate. And so you would think the natural unemployment rate would be a lot lower, but not necessarily because then on the flip side, right, because it's a lot easier now for workers to find a better match, maybe they raise their standards and they look longer. And so even though, yes, for a given amount of search effort, you can find better offers, that doesn't necessarily mean that the optimal thing to do is to reduce your search time. It might just mean you still search or maybe you search longer because you can afford to because now once you do find the place that, that hits, you're getting paid a lot more. And so you're willing to burn your savings for a bit longer to search a little bit more because on the margin, searching for an extra month could be very lucrative. All right, so it's not clear which way it cuts. So certainly workers and employers can find each other more easily now than they could in 1950, but it's not obvious which way that cuts in terms of how should that affect what the natural rate of unemployment is. Okay, so in any event, let's say you're at an initial equilibrium, the actual unemployment rate is 5%, and that's what the natural unemployment rate is. And then the central bank comes in and starts flooding the market with easy money, pushes down interest rates. Businesses now get access to funds and they can start bidding up worker wages. And so those workers who were originally looking for work now all of a sudden start getting better job offers and they start taking them because they haven't yet adjusted to the new reality. And so the actual unemployment rate gets pushed below the natural level, but now people have a lot, this you know influx of new money and that makes prices start rising more rapidly than they originally were in the original trajectory. And so eventually the workers catch on to this and realize, oh, wait a minute. You know, I thought I was getting this huge raise and that's why I took this job offer. But it turns out that when I go to the store to buy things, they're more expensive than I thought they would be. So actually, you know, this wage offer for my employer is not as lucrative as I thought. Okay. And so eventually then, you know, they increase their demands and the actual unemployment rate goes back up to the natural. All right. It's kind of how it works. Hey, everybody. Just your usual reminder. If you like what you're hearing here on the show, please consider contributing. Any amount helps and a recurring monthly contribution is the best of all. For more details and to see the special perks you can get, go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thanks. Now, this thing called the Phillips Curve, this is an alleged trade-off between unemployment and people say inflation, but again, what they mean is consumer price inflation. Interestingly, the original analysis by Phillips, believe it or not, it wasn't by some guy named Curve, if I'm not mistaken, actually looked at the trade-off between unemployment in wage rate increases, right? So that was the axis that, you know, so the one axis was the unemployment rate or maybe the increase or change in the unemployment rate. And the other axis was looking at the change in wage rates. And so that's a lot more compelling if you think about it, right? So don't hate on Phillips himself for what ended up, you know, becoming the thing named after him. So again, they changed it. In modern Keynesian economics, the Phillips curve typically depicts the unemployment rate on one axis and consumer price inflation on the other axis. And it looks like there's this negative relationship. And so the idea is, oh, if you're willing to tolerate high price inflation, then you can get a low unemployment rate. But if, uh uh-oh, if, if, you know, geez, price inflation last month was 8%, that's too high, the Fed needs to tighten. Well, then, according to the Phillips curve, you got to realize you're going to move along that curve if you want to reduce inflation, then the unemployment rate is going to have to jump up. And that's, you know, you're just tracing along that curve. That's the idea. So I'm saying that was an adaptation. The original analysis from Phillips was saying, if you want to lower the unemployment rate, then wages have to increase faster. And so that's not obviously wrong. Like that's, you know, it's kind of like saying, if you want people to buy more apples, the price of apples has to go down or vice versa. Or rather, if you want people to supply more apples then the price of apples has to go up. Okay, the last thing I want to mention is, you know, so what's the problem with the Phillips curve analysis? So here, and this was a famous episode in economics, there was supposed to be this trade-off between inflation and unemployment. And again, with this, you've heard me going back and forth a little bit. The way mainstream economists talk about it, they used to just say inflation, but really what they mean is consumer price inflation. They don't mean the increase in money, which, Austrians, a lot of times, that's what they mean by inflation. And they don't even just mean rises in prices because if the stock market goes up 30%, people usually don't complain about inflation, even though that's a huge increase in certain prices, right? So when the mainstream just says the word inflation nowadays, typically what they mean is some version of consumer price inflation. Okay, so there's this ostensible or alleged trade-off between the unemployment rate and price inflation, consumer price inflation. That's what the Phillips curve nowadays represents. And so the idea was, oh, you can either have a booming economy with low unemployment, you know, things seem good, the labor market's tight, but on the flip side, you have to be willing to tolerate high inflation. Or if you want to break the back of inflation and have low Inflation, you could certainly do that, but then realize you're going to have a weak economy and high unemployment and, you know, and a slack labor market. And that's what the Keynesian macroeconomist fine tuners thought the menu of options was, like in the 50s and 60s. And then that all went out the window in the 70s when we had stagflation. When we had high unemployment rates and high price inflation, that was supposed to be impossible. And so the people like like Milton Friedman and Robert Lucas gained a lot of professional accolades in this period because they had predicted that that would happen. They warned that, hey, you Keynesians in the 1950s and 60s, eventually workers are going to catch on to this. You know, Similar to the process I described a few minutes ago. And yeah, if you pump in a bunch of money, what's that going to do? That will temporarily cause unemployment to go down, but it's because the workers are being fooled. And so yeah, you can goose the numbers for a bit and get unemployment to drop somewhat at the expense of high price inflation, but that's not a long run thing. Eventually the unemployment rate will rise back to the natural level. And so, you know, you're just gaining a year or two of good times, but at the expense of then ruining the public's, you know, inflation expectations. And then once workers adjust, you have a worse menu. So it's not set. And so yes, in the short run, there is this trade off between unemployment and inflation. Again, I mean consumer price inflation, but the curve itself moves over time. And it's actually not that hard to read Robert Lucas in his Nobel Prize paper. All right. So when people win the Nobel Prize, they get to like write up a paper that, you know, then kind of summarizes their position on stuff. So I'll put that in the show notes page. Again, it's Bob slash 245. It's pretty readable. And it's interesting, he gives some of the history and you know, talks about how David Hume anticipated a lot of stuff. Cause it has to do with, we know in the long run money's neutral, right? Like doubling the money supply, that doesn't make the economy wealthier. That doesn't make us all richer. It just basically doubles prices, I'm leaving out some stuff. But in the long run, doubling the quantity of money really just doubles prices. It doesn't make us wealthier. But in the short run, it does seem to have a major impact monetary policy does seem to be able to affect the business cycle. So how is that? And so Robert Lucas talks about that and, you know, the advances they made since Hume and so on. And that's the stuff he won the Nobel Prize for with his rational expectations approach. So Lucas built a model where you could get monetary policy causing a business cycle, even though everybody was rational and the workers were not fooled by prices or fooled by inflation or money. They didn't suffer from what's called money illusion. And so that was what Lucas did there. And that's what led to what's called real business cycle theory, if you're curious. But anyway, his essay is surprisingly readable because Lucas, if you don't know, he's a very technical economist. Like he has like, a, with his co-author Stokey has a book on dynamic math and how you solve problems. It's a very technical book, but it's a typical in grad economics programs. And it's a very mathematical book. All right, so, but this Nobel lecture is surprisingly accessible to the layperson. And one of the things he has in it is six different charts. And so he shows it's US data with the inflation rate on the y axis and the unemployment rate on the x axis, and it's annual data. So if you look at the period from 1950 to 1994, the scatter plot of that, there doesn't seem to be any pattern. It's just all over the place, it's like a cloud. But then, if you break it down decade by decade, then you're seeing you know subsets of that cloud, and it does look like negatively sloped lines. I mean, it's not a perfectly straight line, but there's definitely a linear pattern there if you break it down decade by decade. But what happens is the axis shifts, right? So each of those subpanels, if you look closely at the axes, you can see that the numbers change. And that's why when you put them all together on one big chart, or I should say one chart that has the entire data set for the whole 44 years, it just looks like a cloud with no line. So what Lucas is saying is what happens is once workers have expectations about what inflation is going to be the next few years, then yes, there's a short-term trade-off. And so if inflation ends up being lower than what they thought, the unemployment rate's higher. And if inflation ends up being higher than what they anticipated then the... Unemployment rates lower, but once they adjust to the new baseline, you know things go back. The actual unemployment rate tends towards the natural rate. Okay, so put it in other words: let's say originally you have a situation where the unemployment rate is eight percent and inflation is two percent, and the Keynesian comes along and says, "Well, if you want to bring that unemployment rate down from eight percent because that's unacceptable, you can do it, but we're going to get high unemployment or high inflation." So they pump in a bunch of money the unemployment rate drops from 8% down to four, but the CPI inflation rate jumps from 2% to six. But then that's not sustainable. It's not that if now, if you're just willing to have 6% price inflation forever, the unemployment rate stays at four. So I think the number I said, no, over time, the unemployment rate rises back to five, and then you're now you're stuck at 6% price inflation. And so then if you want to say, no, I don't want it to be five, I want it to be four still, then you'd have to tolerate price inflation of being whatever, 7% in order to knock it down to four, the unemployment rate down to four. And then people adjust. And so that you, you get caught in this vicious spiral where over time, it takes higher and higher rates of price inflation to maintain a desired level of unemployment if it's lower than the natural rate. Okay, and so what that means is, yeah, there's a sense in which the Phillips curve exists in the short run, but it moves around based on what's happening. Okay, so I think that's, A good spot to wrap. Thank you for your attention, folks. And I will try to pump out some more episodes in the near future, but I am about to go out of town. I'll try to get one more in the can before I get on that big bird in the sky. Catch you next time, folks. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show,
1: the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.